Bibles out with me this morning. I want to ask that you turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 7. The book of Romans in chapter 7. As we pick up now on our verse-by-verse study of this letter, and we're coming near to the end of our study in these days of Romans 5, 6, and 7. I know that you were well-served last Sunday by uh, Pastors Johnston and Nines, and uh, looking forward to listening to, uh, to their messages uh, this week and to hear uh, what they fed you last week. Uh, but I am very glad now for us to come back together and to return again to the book of Romans in chapter 7. I want to begin reading in verse 7. We're going to read through verse 12. Uh, we've already had two messages on this passage But I wanted to do just one more very practical message uh, from verse 12. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, and our focus will be verse 12. Beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. My argument this morning is this. One reason that Paul wants the Roman Christians to truly understand and grasp that the law is good, is that he wants the law to still be very useful to them in their Christian lives. That is, Paul has been talking in previous passages about the law's condemnation, about how Jesus saves us from the wrath of the law. And if we are not careful, we might begin to think that the law of God is somehow a wicked enemy. That the law of God is something we should avoid at all costs. And yet Paul, in these verses, has been going to great lengths to emphasize that the law of God is good. And I think the reason that he does this is he does not want us to become antinomians, that is, people who are anti-law. He wants us to be like David. He wants us to be a people who consider the law of God more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. The law still has use in the life of the Christian, and we put ourselves in great difficulty if we shun the gift of God's law. And so what I want to do this morning is simply bring to you a very practical message 
on the role of God's law in our lives as Christians today. And so here's kind of the outline. I'm going to give you three presuppositions. That is, three things that I'm just assuming you already agree with, okay? But we need to have those out there in order for the sermon to make sense. Then I'm going to give you two explanations, two points of explanation that I hope will make what I'm saying be a little more clear to you. And then I'm going to give you very, four practical ways that Christians should be using the moral law of God in their lives today. So here we go. Three presuppositions about the law being good, the law being holy, as Paul teaches in verse 12. When it comes to using God's law in Christian life, the first presupposition we must have is the one taught in verse 12. The law is good. That's presupposition one. The law is good. In 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So, so there is a way to use the law of God that is not good, right? Using the law of God to earn God's favor is not good. Using the law to promote self-righteousness the way the Pharisees did is an unlawful way to use the law. Using the law as simply some external standard, as some list of rules with no regard for the heart is an unlawful way to use the law. But even in those cases, it's not the law that is bad. It's the person wielding the law in an unlawful way. The law of God is good, and when it is used rightly, it brings great, great blessing into our lives. So let me just ask you to consider your own heart and ask yourself this question. Honestly, how do you feel about the law of God? How do you feel about the law of God? How do you feel about the commands of Christ? How do you feel about the Ten Commandments? When you're reading through the Psalms or the Proverbs or the Prophets and you find commands of God there, how do you respond in your heart? Are you grateful for the law of God? Does your heart rejoice in the law of God as a lamp into your feet and a light into your path? Presupposition one, the law is good. Presupposition number two is this. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to break the law, but freedom to keep the law. Put it another way. The freedom Christ brings to us in conversion, in salvation, is not freedom to break the law, but freedom to keep the law. We saw those in Romans 6 who argued that grace means we can now abound in sin. We can now go live like the devil because we're Christians and we're saved by grace. But Paul taught in Romans 6 that real freedom is freedom to obey the law. Before we were saved, our hearts were slaves to disobedience. Our slavery to sin was a slavery that kept us from genuine heart obedience to the law of God. But now that we have believed the gospel, and now that we are believing on Jesus, 
Our hearts now have the love of God and the love of others beating within our souls and that enables us to keep the law really and truly. We were once slaves to disobedience. Christ has broken the shackles so that we can now obey from the heart. We once could not walk this path of blessing, this path of obedience. We were so enslaved to sin, we didn't even want to. We were blind to the goodness of the law of God. We hated the law of God. But now the freedom that Christ has brought to us is the kind of freedom that opens our eyes to say, you know what, our God is wise, and our God is good, and our God loves us, and therefore his laws are a wonderful gift. How could I not love them? How could I not want to follow them? And thus Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for Jesus and obedience to the law are not enemies. They are the best of friends. Presupposition number three is this. If we love Christ, we will keep his commandments. If we love Christ, we will keep his commandments. Jesus taught this, John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, through the message of Christ crucified for sinners, we have come to see the love of Jesus for us. And by faith, we live in that love of Jesus for us. By faith, we believe that our sins are forgiven, that the Spirit lives within us, that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. And this faith, which causes us to feel and know the love of Jesus, also causes our hearts to respond back with love to him. We love him because he first loved us. And as we live in his love, we will want to love him back. And if we love him back, we will have a desire within us to please him, to walk in a way worthy of him to want to be the kind of Christian that represents him well in this world. Here is the Savior who died for us, who bore hell itself for us. And he gives us these commands because he loves us, because he is our good shepherd who leads the sheep. Through Jesus' commands, he leads us beside still waters. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Through the law of God, Jesus is protecting us, keeping our souls from harm. Jesus is the wise physician of our souls, and his commands are prescriptions for us that will save us from terrible danger. Why would we who love Jesus, not want to accept and obey his wise and wonderful commands. And so if we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. So those are the three presuppositions. That's, I'm assuming you agree with those points. And now I want to give you two explanatory points, two explanations. I think these will be of great help to us as we seek to seek the role 
of God's law in our lives as Christians. The first is this. When looking at the Old Testament law, it is the moral aspects of the law which endure for us. When looking at the Old Testament law, it is the moral aspects of the law that endure for us. So we think about the Mosaic law, the law given through Moses at Mount Sinai. We think about those books of the Bible that that have law code within them, right? We're thinking about the second part of Exodus and Leviticus and parts of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And these laws were given to ancient Israel for their good. Many of these commands were, were ceremonial in nature. That is, they pointed to faith in Jesus. Look at the second half of Exodus, right? The whole second half of the book of Exodus is caught up with instructions for building the tabernacle. It's caught up with instructions concerning the kinds of garments that the priests were to wear. Those commands were not given for us today to obey by building another tabernacle. Nor are we to be designing clothing for priests. Rather, we obey the commands that we find in the second part of Exodus by looking to the one to whom they foreshadowed, namely Jesus himself. Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He was and is the fulfillment of the priesthood. And the entire purpose of all of those commandments was to say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the great high priest. Look to Jesus, the one who comes and dwells in you and among you by his Spirit. And so it is these spiritual aspects, these moral aspects of the commands that endure. The moral aspects of God's law endure forever because true morality endures forever. When we talk about morality, when we talk about right and wrong, we're simply talking about the character of God himself. And God never changes. God is one who treasures his son God is one who loves His Son. God is one who exalts His Son. And that was the point of all of these ceremonial commandments. Love my Son. Look to my Son. Exalt my Son. And we obey those commands in that way. There are also civil commands in the Old Testament. So there are ceremonial, there are also civil commands in the Old Testament that that have to do with the ordering and the structure of national Israel. Um... The book of Numbers is actually a very exciting book of the Bible. There are lots of very interesting events that take place in the book of Numbers. A lot of people never make it to those parts of the book of Numbers because the first chapter starts off so boring. The first chapter of the book of Numbers includes numbers, right? It is uh, the results of a census which God commanded for Moses to take at that time. And the second chapter of Numbers records God's commands for the structure of how the camp was to be set up around the tabernacle as the people of Israel traveled through the wilderness. This tribe was to camp on this side of the tabernacle, and this tribe was to camp on this side of the tabernacle. And when time came to set out, this tribe was to lead first, and then this tribe was to go second, and then this tribe was to go Third, what does what obedience to that look like in our lives? Well, the enduring moral quality is 
the one we find in the New Testament, namely that all things should be done decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14.40. What we learn from these civil commands that we find in the Old Testament is that our God is not a God of chaos. He is not a God who simply says, do things on a whim, but rather he is a God of decency and order. And that was how his people in the Old Testament were to be marked, and that's how his people today are to be marked. We are to carry ourselves with decency and orderliness. These are enduring moral commands for us. In the end, every command, whether it be in the Old Testament law, whether it be in the books of history, whether it be in the books of wisdom, whether it be in the prophetic books, the Gospels, Acts, the Epistles, Revelation, every command should point us to Christ and the character of Christ and the way that we who are pursuing Christ's likeness should live. Now, first explanatory point then was when you're reading the Old Testament law, look for the enduring moral aspect. That's what we're to obey. Second explanatory point that I would make is this. Never forget that the law of God is spiritual and obedience is to be from the heart. Never forget that the law of God is spiritual and obedience is to be from the heart. Paul is going to teach this in, let's see, verse 14 of Romans 7. We're going to see this in just a week or so. For we know that the law is spiritual. He says, it's very easy for us to get into the habits of doing certain things in obedience to Jesus without our hearts really being in on it. We come to church. Why do we come to church? Maybe we started out coming to church as an act of happy obedience to Christ. We saw that church is a gift for our good but after a while, just going week after week after week, it just simply became something that we do. And, and you see, once our heart is taken out of the equation, we're no longer truly obeying the law of God. Love is the fulfillment of the law of God. Take love out of the equation. Take love for God and love for others out of your obedience, and what you have is not obedience, but a shell of obedience. You have a form of godliness, but you do not have its power. So please remember, as we talk about the place of the law of God in the life of the Christian, it, it must be spiritual. It must be from the heart. And church, let me just ask you to think about your own life. Are there any acts of obedience that you perform which have become pure tradition rather than genuine heartfelt obedience. Think about saying the blessing before you eat. Giving thanks to God before you receive your food. Or what about your private prayer life? Has your private prayer life simply become more of a duty than heartfelt obedience? Think about our singing in church, the giving of our tithes and offerings. Think about listening to the sermon. Have these things simply become cold routines for us? Or do they really come out of a heart that says, these things were commanded to me by Christ. He knows what's best for me because I love him and I want to be like him. I'm going to happily do these things and submit myself to them. 
test your heart. The cure for a cold-hearted obedience is to look afresh to your Savior and to remember afresh His love for you. Remember His wisdom that He knows what's best for you. Remember that every command is for your well-being and for your eternal happiness. Remember how he has already proven the greatness of his love for you by going to the cross. Remember what Jesus has already saved you from, the, the wrath of God in hell, and what he has saved you for, the glories of God in heaven. Allow the love of Christ for you to be a spark that falls upon your heart and let it catch a flame anew that you will be eager and earnest to receive his commands with joy to obey happily so that you can obey the law which is spiritual in a spiritual way. All right, so, given you the presuppositions, I've given you two explanatory points. Now let me give you four practical ways that Christians ought to be using God's law in their daily lives. Number one, this is the most obvious, that's why I'm giving it to you first. Use the law of God for direction and guidance. God's law does not tell us what to do in every situation. God's law does not tell us the name and address of the person we are to marry. God's law does not tell us the name of the college that we are to attend. God's law does not tell us whether we should keep the job we have or take the job offer we've just been given. But the law of God does bring very real guidance and very real direction for how we are to live every day. It helps us to learn how to use our tongues well for the glory of God. The law of God teaches us how to use our thoughts well for the glory of God. God's law gives us instructions concerning how we handle money how to respond to conflict, even how we are to relate to food and to drink. God's law gives us guidance concerning the way we are to dress and the kinds of friends that we are to have. Rather than just leaving us on our own, God, as our Father, has graciously given us instructions that will preserve and protect us in this world. While the law of God does not tell us the name and address of the person we are to marry, it does give us some very important helps in knowing what to look for in a potential spouse. The law of God does not tell me the name of the college that I should attend, but the law of God does tell me to value education, and it tells me what a God-honoring education should include and the means of grace that I should be participating in while I'm at college. But frankly... If I'm a, looking at a college or a university, and I'm thinking about attending there, but I know that there's no good church around that college or university, does the law of God have anything to say about that? It absolutely does, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I don't, I don't care how great a university it is. If you're not going to be a part of a healthy church while you're there, find another university that has a healthy church nearby. So you see, while there may be not, is it, God doesn't tell us the exact place to go, the law of God does give us helpful guidance, helpful instruction to consider as we think about these things. Whether it's the most mundane aspects of everyday life, whether it's the most important decisions you will ever make, the law of God 
are a gift from your Father to help you make the best decisions which will work out for your good, the benefit of others, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So hence, we would do very well to hide the law of God in our hearts. We would do very well to store up God's instructions deep into our souls. Remember Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, blessed, happy, favored by God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, his life is not directed by what the world says is best. His life is not directed by the opinions of others who do not know Christ or care about Christ. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is that man. Is that you? Is that me? Blessed is that person who cares little about the counsel and advice and opinions of the world, but who cares what God has to say about a matter. What does God's law direct me to do in this situation? The person that thinks that way, that man, woman, child, will be blessed in this life. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither in all that he does. In all that he does, he prospers. You want that? Do you want to prosper for King Jesus? Then love the law of God. Hide it deep into your heart. Don't we want to be Christians who are abounding with good fruit? Fruit that's just right for every season of our lives. Right? He says for, for let's see, um, yields its fruit in its season. There are different seasons in your life where you're going to need different kinds of fruit being produced. The law of God will be used by the Spirit of God to make that happen. And you will abound in good fruit. So we ought to, to love the law of God. We ought to cherish it and know it. If our desire is to be a blessing to others and to be radically used by God in this world, here is a key. It is the person who meditates on God's law who is blessed like this. He, he doesn't just read it, but he chews on it thinks about it. He takes it to God in prayer. He prays for the, for the grace of God to be able to obey it. He does not seek to obey it out of a desire to be right with God. He embraces the gospel and is living in the truth of the grace of God. He knows the love of Jesus for him or her. And so he steps out in obedience to the law of God as an act of worship, not as an act of trying to earn salvation. This is worshipful living. I want to know the law of God so I can live it out in honor to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So the first practical use of the law in your life is guidance and direction. Number two, the second practical way to use the law of God in your life is to use it for self-examination. For self-examination is such an important discipline and it is one that has fallen largely out of style in this world. We tell people to follow their hearts. We tell people to just be themselves. 
But most people don't even know their own hearts. Most people don't even really know themselves. Know thyself has become a catchphrase in a culture of people that do not know themselves. And if they did, they would not be so quick to say, just follow your heart, because they'd understand the implications of that statement. Self-examination humbles us before Almighty God because it helps us to see who we are in light of His character. If you want to grow in humility, if you want to grow in being brought low before God, and you should want that because God draws near to the humble, if you want to grow in humility, practice self-examination. Practice the art of holding up the law of God to your life and letting it reveal the true state of your soul. Self-examination is a mighty, mighty weapon in the war to kill pride, to kill arrogance, and to cultivate humility. Now, self-examination does not mean that I look at myself and judge myself according to my own standards. I think I'm doing okay in life. No, self-examination means that I take time on a regular basis to hold up the way I've been living, the way I've been talking, the way I've been thinking, my attitudes and the priorities that I have had to hold them up in light of the law of God, the way it says I ought to have been living, the way it says I ought to have been talking, the way it says I ought to have been thinking, the attitudes I should have had, the priorities I should have had. This helps me to see if I'm growing, first of all. Can I see, if I'm doing this regularly, that I'm growing? Can I see that that maybe some sins that I used to struggle with, I no longer struggle with to the same extent? Do I see my priorities changing, coming more into accord with the law of God? Do I see my attitudes changing, coming more into accord with the law of God? The law of God will help you see growth in grace, but it will also help you see those sins that you need to freshly repent of. Self-examination drives us again and again to Jesus as we are freshly reminded of just how greatly we need Him. Self-examination is a regular reminder that we have no leg to stand on but Jesus because no matter how much we've grown in grace in this life, we are still far from what the law of God requires. This is a wonderful help for people like me who struggle with pride. I would suggest it's probably a big help for folks like you. because We all struggle with pride. What does self-examination look like? Well, you, you take a command of God, right? Um, let's take the first commandment as an example, right? The first commandment says we are to have no other gods but the true God. Now, remember, the law is spiritual. It's supposed to be from the heart. So this, this doesn't mean simply that I wear the name Christian and I don't go bow down to an idol in India. To not have any other gods before God means in my heart I do not honor or prefer anything above the true God revealed in the Bible. I do not worship or esteem anything more greatly than Him. And so in self-examination, I submit myself to that law and say, how am I doing? Do I love the God revealed in the Bible, above everything else. Is the God I love the true one? Is he the one revealed in the pages of Scripture? Or am I loving a God that I formed according to my own imagination? 
Do I believe everything that the Bible says about this God? And do I love him for who he is? Do I love God so much that my heart rejoices even at the sound of his name? Would I rather spend time serving him or serving myself? Do I care more about his glory or my glory, his name or my name? Do I care more about God and his purposes than my work, my hobbies, even more than my family? And do I give my all for my family and for my work and for my callings for his glory above all? Do I love God with all my mind? Do I love God with all my intellect, longing to know more about him? Am I constantly hungry to gain more insight about who he is and how I might better honor him? Do I love God with all my will so that knowing him and adoring him and being with him is my chief desire and every other desire must play second fiddle to that? You see, you use these questions to put your soul to the test and you will find, always you will find, that you are guilty of having broken God's law. But this helps you to identify your sins. This helps you to acknowledge your sins, to confess your sins. Some people I know actually do this and and use a journal. And they use a journal to write down the sins that they see when they do this. And then what you do is you put away all excuses. You recognize just how vile your sin really is. And you go before God and you confess your sins. You say, God, this is who I am. And then you make a beeline for the cross and you embrace again the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You declare how sorry you are for your sins and your heart you turn from them. And then, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We embrace the gospel. We remind ourselves that we are Christ and he is ours. And then we say, now Jesus, help me to see what I can be doing to make this not be like this anymore. Help me to not love any other God but the true God. Help me to put every other idol out of my soul. Help me never to put my family above God, but to love my family for God's sake. Help me, Jesus, to do this. And then you get practical and you start saying now here's some ways Lord Jesus help me to do this this week if self-examination is a practice that seems foreign to you if you've never experienced this in your own life um, the book that's helped me the most uh, besides the Bible is uh, Henry Scudder's The Christian's Daily Walk highly recommend that you check out that book which gives a lot of help for how to examine yourself how to humble yourself and be brought low before God. Because, folks, if we get brought low before God, he will exalt us. He will use us mighty. The people who accomplish the most for Jesus in this life are the people who know what it is to be broken before God. So that's the second great use of the law. First, guidance and direction. The second, self-examination. Now, we're going to talk about the third and fourth much more briefly, but they are important. Um, when, we are talk, when we talk about the law of God, we're not just talking about the commands themselves. We're also talking about the blessings and the curses that are attached to the commands. So, for example, when you read the law of God, you see that often you'll have a command, but you'll also have a promise of either a blessing or a curse 
that comes depending on whether you obey or disobey. For example, Deuteronomy 27, 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And so a third great use of the law in our lives is this. Use the promised curses of the law to grow in your hatred of sin. Use the promised curses of the law to grow in your hatred of sin. As a Christian, you are now free from the curse of the law. Christ has taken the curse for you. If you have dishonored your father or your mother, and who of us have not, if you have dishonored your father or mother, the curse that God promised upon anyone who does that has been placed on Christ in your place if you're a believer. But nevertheless, it does our soul much good to remember what sin deserves. Deuteronomy 27, 16 says that dishonoring our parents is so serious that it brings the very curse of God upon the person who does it. Think about what it means to be cursed by God. Think about what it means to have the holy, 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 almighty, all-righteous God of the universe against you as your enemy. Here is the one who holds your life and your soul in his hands. And he is the one that brings this curse upon you. Does that not teach our hearts just how serious a matter it is? To show honor to our parents. Does it not show how much God cares about this? Can you treat this command as a small command knowing that that promise is attached to it? So you see, paying attention to the curses that are attached to the law of God, even though you've been saved from them, they teach your heart to sit, to hate sin. If God hates dishonoring parents, for an example, this much, surely it must be a despicable thing. So use the law of God, especially the curses attached to the law of God in your life to help you grow in your hatred of sin. But the opposite is true. This is number four. Use the promised blessings of the law to grow in your love of virtue. Use the promised blessings of the law to grow in your love of virtue. So, for example, if the promised curse of Deuteronomy 27.16 helps you to hate the sin of dishonoring your parents because it brings a curse from the very God who created you against you, listen to the promise given in Exodus 20.12, part of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So you see... Not only does God hate the dishonoring of parents, but he loves the honoring of parents. He brings blessing on those who honor their parents. Of the Ten Commandments, this is the only one that actually comes with a, a blessing directly attached to it. Honoring your parents is a virtue that warms God's heart. It, it pleases him. It brings his blessing. And if that's true, well, then shouldn't it be that be like that for us? Shouldn't we love this virtue? Shouldn't this teach you to cultivate in your heart a great delight in seeing people honor those in authority over them? Shouldn't this cause you to be encouraged and thankful when you see children or teenagers or even grown adults showing honor to their parents? 
So you see, you can use the curses attached to the law of God in the Bible to show you, you know what, this sin is a weighty thing, and I must not take it for granted. And you can use the promised blessings attached to the law of God in the Bible to say, see, God really loves this, and therefore I should really love it too. I should delight in this when I see it. Does that make sense? Did those last two make sense to you? You better say yes. We'll have to go back and do it all over again. Does it, does it make sense to you? Good, good. I'm glad it did. Good, okay. All right, so here are four practical ways to use the law of God in your life. Number one, guidance and direction. Number two, self-examination. Number three, cultivating a hatred of sin. Number four, cultivating a love for virtue. Let me close this way. Mount Hermon, let us love the law of God. But Mount Hermon... Let us love the gospel even more. These things go hand in hand. The more you love the law of God, the more you will be grieved that you have broken it. And the more grieved you are that you have broken it, the more thankful you will be for such a Savior as the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you come to understand and to love even the curses of the law, the more you will come to love that Christ has saved you from the curse of the law. The more you come to understand the blessings that are attached to the law, the more you will be thankful for Jesus who has brought those blessings upon you by his obedience into your life. You will be thankful that Jesus has written the law onto your heart and that he is gradually causing you to be conformed to it. Loving the law should cause you to have a greater love for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone apart from works alone. So church, let us love the law of God. Let us love the God it describes. Let us love the Savior it describes. And in humility, let us come to Jesus and find not only in Him salvation, but also let us look to Him for the strength to obey Him and to live as salt and light in this world. Amen? All right, let's pray.